once has happened in my life. Once was in um, Los Angeles. Elizabeth and I were trying to f- get to Sydney and New Zealand. This was before we had kids where we could do stuff like that. And we were trying to get to Sydney, and, and we had a three-day layover in Los Angeles. And we went to go see the show, the movie, Moulin Rouge. I don't know if you remember that or not. Nicole Kidman, I think, was in it. And uh, we went to this little community theater, not like a Hollywood 20, not like a Regal Cinema, just a, a little community theater. Place was packed. I mean, absolutely packed. We sat right in the middle of the middle row. And when the movie was over... I instinctively, and so did Elizabeth, both of us hopped up so we, were, we, we would leave. I mean, that's just how we are trained. That's how we were. The movie's over. The credits come up. Both of us hop up. Nobody else in the theater moved an inch. Nobody moved an inch. And the credits start rolling. And you get through the first, you know, the big names, and nobody did anything. But then you get to the uh, makeup director and the second assistant mic operator. And you get to the caterer, and you get to all of those like obscure names over a 10-minute period. And what happened in that crowd is this. People would stand up at certain points and cheer for their friends because they know all those people. And they're in that industry. Oh, the caterer. Yes, I know Bobby. Oh, that makeup uh, artist, uh, Andrea, that's the, what I can think of when I think of a makeup artist. Andrea, we, I know Andrea, she does a great job with makeup. Oh, the, the boom operator. Oh, they always hold that mic so perfectly. We know them. It was fascinating. That was the community. Uh, the end of the show was not the end of the show. There was more going on. The second time it happened was when I took uh, Daniel and a bunch of his buddies to see the movie Avengers Endgame. I have no idea what it was about, still don't. I, I can't figure that. I'm not a comic book guy. I, I couldn't track anything. But all I know is at the very end, I stand up going, like, come on, boys, let's go. We got to get back home. And uh, they all say, no, 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 Dad. Because apparently in that, you wait through the credits, and then there's always a hidden scene. And the hidden scene resolves a tension that was in the movie. So there's a resolution of a tension, and then it points towards a future a sequel, another movie, another coming attraction. And that scene kind of ties that together and says, okay, this is what's happened. We're going to resolve that. And then we're going to point towards something that's coming or something that's going to happen in the future. The ending is not, in fact, the ending. There's more to the movie after the credits start to roll, which is exactly what's happening in John chapter 20 and John chapter 21. See, John, the book of John, in effect, ends in verse 30 of John chapter 20. If you look there with me, this is the the great ending. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is is, is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the ending. That should be the ending. That's where it all wraps up. He's resurrected. But then there's this, uh, this epilogue, this next scene, and this next scene, if you wait past John 20, if you wait through the credits, if you will, there's this other scene where there's same thing happens. There's a resolution of Peter, and then there's a, a pointing forward to the sequel because at the end of John chapter, uh, the gospel of John, John chapter 21, here's what we see. We see literally Peter 
and John walking off following Jesus into the sunset. And it's unresolved, but it's pointing towards something else. There's a resolution, and then it's pointing towards something else, this new hope, this new future, a sequel of what their life is going to be like. But most of our lives, let's just be honest, most of our lives don't feel that way, do they? Most of our lives don't feel super hopeful. Most of our lives, don't, we don't feel like we've resolved something and there's new hope. In movie terms, most of our lives feel like Groundhog Day. You wake up, you hit the uh, alarm, and your first thought is, why didn't I go to bed earlier? Right? Your second thought is, I wonder if uh, she made coffee this morning or if I need to do it. And then you check your emails. And you go through the, you drive to work, you get the same stale coffee, you go have lunch with somebody, you get the emails, you hit the same lecture from the boss, from the sales associate, you come home and you ask the wife, how was your day? And she says, fine, how was yours? Who's doing dinner? Who's going to get the kids into bed? And you go to bed tired and the same thing happens the next day. And here's what happens. We promise that we're going to change. You might even be uh, living with somebody who says, I'm going to change, I'm going to change, I'm going to change, I'm, going to, I'm really going to change this time. And then people revert back. And you might think, my life's going to be different now. I'm going to change. I'm going to live life differently. And then you revert back. And the alarm goes off, and you just go about the day. The promise this morning is, friends, you don't have to live that way. Like, you really don't have to live that way. But that's what's happening here in this uh, context of John chapter 21. I want to start with verse 2, and then we're going to go to verse 1. Because in verse 2, here's what we see. Simon Peter reverted. He went back to just clocking in and clocking out. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll go with you. And they went out into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. This is after the crucifixion of Jesus. After all of this, the only thing they know to do is, well, let's just go fishing again. We need the money anyway. We haven't done it in three and a half years. We might as well just revert back to what we know that was a great mountaintop experience, the whole crucifixion. And, you know, that was a, what a great mountaintop experience. But let's just, let's just go back up to Galilee and fish, and we'll fish through the night. Imagine the frustrating nature, as it says at that last verse, of all through the night, they catch nothing. Man, why can't, we can't even do this. We're not even good at this anymore. We're never going to be provided for our families. Was that thing whole of farce? They're tired. They're throwing the net into the boat. We thought we used to be able to know how to do this. The calluses are gone after three years of not fishing on a regular basis, and they're just stuck, reverting back. And you know what they need? They need revelation. They need to remember who Jesus is. And that's the purpose of this chapter. So now go back to verse 1, because it gives us the purpose. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples, again, by the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. Don't get confused. It uses several names. And he revealed himself in this way. And so the purpose of John 21 is, now this is how I'm going to show them who I really am. 
So four ways that we see Jesus reveal himself. First, Jesus reveals his mind of truth. Now let's just kind of walk through it. Verses four through eight. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And just imagine that scenario, if you would. Jesus shows up in the morning. The sun's coming up. The, the glimmer of hope and uh, maybe the practical joke of Jesus sitting there and watching these guys try to fish, thinking, man, they have no idea. They just went back to what they were doing. They have no idea how much I'm trying to change their lives. And there Jesus is, quietly, meekly on the shore, God himself. Jesus said to them, children, you have any fish? They answered him, no, <laughs> that was it. And he said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, probably grumbling so. So they cast it. And now they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple who Jesus loved, and that's John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came with the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. There's a little 60 degree wedge. And so here they are coming together on the shore, Jesus revealing his mind of truth. What's the mind of truth? Here's what Jesus does. He just states the obvious. Have you caught anything? Hey, is it working to go back to doing what you were doing before I called you to be fishers of men? Remember that conversation where I said, hey, be a fisher of men? And now you just revert back to this? How's it working for you? Have you caught anything yet? That's one of my favorite questions to talk to non-believers about when I get the a chance to spend an afternoon or lunch with somebody who doesn't follow Jesus yet, I'll, I'll often say to him, you describe to me what you think the world should be like. What's your worldview? How, how do you think should, things should work, ideally? Like if you could just write the ticket, if you were God, what would you do? And, and they'll give, everybody has an answer to that. They'll give me a vision, and then I'll usually follow up with this question, how's that working out for you? I mean, is, that, is it working? Okay, well, why not? Maybe there's another worldview that you need to explain something. It's just that simple question of have you caught any fish can be so penetrating. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, practical common sense is taking the trouble to think about what you're doing and the likelihood of what's going to come from it. Just to take stock of your life. Like what are you doing in life and what do you think is going to come of that? Just asking the question of what's the mind of Christ? Because it says, and there's so much wisdom in the mind of Christ. For example, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to man, but at end, it leads to death. There's always going to be a way that seems like it's the right way to go. You don't, nobody intentionally tries to get lost in this life. There's a way that seems right to you. But in the end, it actually leads to death. So what do you need? We need the mind of Christ. And how does that kind of appropriate itself? See, for example, there's a way that seems right to you. For example, I'm going to form my self-esteem based off what other people think about me. 
I'm going to form my identity based how I'm received. There's a way that seems right, for example, but in the end, it leads to our bondage. Charles Horton Cooley, he just wrote a brilliant article about this. And the role of social media, and I'm going to keep harping on social media because we're still not caught up to it. We, the studies are not in to the impact that social media is having in our world. We'll see all the studies in about 10 years from now, but it's massive. But what Charles Cooley said is this. He said, from what I can tell, we're developing our concept of self by watching how other people react to different versions of ourself that we put forth. So I'm going to put forth, here's a picture of me and a puppy. There's a lot of people that like that. Oh, I guess they like me with a puppy. So that's going to be who I am now. I'm, I'm going to put forth this image of I'm always struggling and I always need help. And I, oh, I'm always, woe is me. Oh, I get so much sympathy from that. So I'm now going to create my image and my identity around that. We're trying to find our esteem and our identity by putting different versions of ourselves out there and seeing what hits, seeing what we get back. And you don't have to do that with social media. You can do it anyway. But here's the thing. With the mind of Christ, what Peter shows us is the only thing I care about is what Christ thinks about me. So he's stripped down to his undershirt for work. And he sees Jesus, and it's still not resolved. He betrayed him, and immediately he girds himself up, and he jumps into the ocean. And it should be highlighted this. Jewish people were not swimmers. They didn't like the water. Tyre and Sidon, they were the seafaring people. The Jewish people were land people. And the sea represented chaos. The sea represented uncertainty. And so here Peter is throwing himself into the sea because he sees Jesus because that's the only thing he's concerned about. He's willing to cast his nets to the side and to believe the truth of what Christ thinks about him. Friends, Jesus reveals his mind of truth, and we need, we need truth. I, let me bring this up. Hey, look, let me address something first. Our chillers broke this morning. They went down this morning, so I know it's hot in here, and I can see you all fanning. You'll be okay. We're, we're going to be fine, but I, I, let me just recognize, I know it's hot, so you know, if you need a fan or do whatever, uh, we will be okay, and thankfully, we are people that love a temperature within two or three degrees. And when it's not within two or three years, we get a little bit uncomfortable. If you get a little uncomfortable, just pray for the missionaries in Africa. That's all you need to do. <laughs> and then you can come back to it. Uh, we need truth. Over the last two years, look, I've gotten so many emails, and this is not, I'm, uh, I'm not coming down on anybody, but good night have I gotten so many emails. Uh, about COVID, about what to do with COVID, about race relationship, about uh, Marxism, about uh, vaxes, about intervertmacin, I can never say that word, about, I've gotten so many emails over the last two years. And you know what I've noticed, and I'm not trying to come down on this congregation, but you know what I've noticed? Very, very few, and this is statistical because I've saved the ones that had this in there. Very, very few quote any scripture at all. It's all just opinions. Links to YouTube things I should watch or you think I should watch. But you know what I haven't gotten over the last two years? An email that says, Andy, I'm scared. I'm worried. 
I'm mad. But these are the verses. These are the truths that I'm clinging to. This is the scripture that God is impressing upon my heart. This is what's giving me joy. I haven't got that email. You know what we need? We need the mind of Christ. We need truth. We need the scriptures to guide us, not our own minds, not our own opinions. We need scripture to do it. Philippians 2, if you want to turn there, I don't know if it will be on the screen or not. But listen, I'm going to read this slowly. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having some love, being accord and full of one mind. In other words, think the way Christ wants you to think. How is that? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's what we need. We need the mind of truth because we revert. What we're naturally going to do is we're going to revert to our own opinions. We're going to revert to what we think is right. And we need Jesus to reveal to us the mind of truth. Second thing, we need Jesus to reveal to us his desire to provide. Look at verse 9. When they got out to land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it. Let me just pause there. The fish were already there. Jesus brought his own fish. He he, he was already, he didn't need their fish. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. So they add to the number. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They all knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Such a fascinating uh, text. I don't want to talk about too much uh, of this text, but let me just highlight one thing. Why was there 153 fish? Uh, Often uh, preached point of this text. Here's why. Because there wasn't 152 and there wasn't 154. It was just 153. Don't, don't go to uh, Ezekiel and try to take those numbers and multiply it by seven. That's horrible. People were still passing that stuff down. They would have counted the fish naturally because they have to divide them up among the fishermen. How many fishermen do we have? How many fish do we have? Okay, we each get seven. That's what they were doing. He's just reporting historical facts. So don't get caught up in that. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus reveals at this moment his desire to provide. He's already got the fire. He's already got the fish. He's already got all of these things. And what Jesus wants to do is provide for you things that you can't provide for yourself. That's why he says in Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money on things which aren't bread and your labor for things that don't satisfy? And here around this table, when nobody dares to ask, because they know the answer, are 
Are you the Lord? They already know the answer. It's the third time he's revealed himself. But here Jesus provides for them a meal. He provides for them security. He provides for them contentment. He provides for them peace. He provides all of those things for him in this context. Look, the the most minimal provision that drips from the throne of heaven is better than anything we can achieve for ourselves by our own self-sufficiency. It'd be comparable to try to find a ring for your fiance at a yard sale. You might get lucky. But what Jesus does is open Tiffany's and say, pick whatever you want. The most minimal provision from Christ is infinitely better than anything you will ever achieve through your own self-sufficiency and self-effort. And God reveals even at this moment to these tired, they've been up all night, scared disciples, I'm here to provide for you. I'm here to give you everything you need. In the oft-quoted C.S. Lewis passage, I feel like I need to quote it. I haven't quoted it in five years, according to my records. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday of the sea. We're far too easily pleased. We just revert, don't they? Don't we? We just revert to going back to, well, I have to provide my own joy. I have to provide my own peace. I have to provide my own contentment. I have to provide these things. Rather going to the Lord and saying, what are you going to provide? Here, look, I have a statistical analysis of this too. And not just the emails, but that prayer wall that's out there on my left, your right. Let me tell you how that should work. It's in the foyer there. And there's people that put on the left, ask for prayers. And the way that could work or should work is you put any prayer that you want to and walk by, and if you see a prayer that you want to pray for, you take it, stick it in your Bible, and you just start praying for it. You might not ever know that person. And then on the right, when prayers are answered, post a prayer answer there, and you walk by and see the encouragement. I just cleared it off this morning, the one on the right. Kept the one on the left because we still need to pray for those things. And you, when I've cleared those off every month, you know what I've noticed? 80% of them are kids because kids are not yet self sufficient. And they're still lost in wonder that there's a God out there that can provide and answer prayers. And so their answer, their prayers answer, I mean, you can tell unless y'all have awful grammar and handwriting, it's a kid. God healed my grandfather. Asking God to save my neighbor who's coming to church with us Sunday. God helped me get an A on the test. It's just the wonder of kids who've realized that we have a God who's willing to provide. And we need to learn from those kids in our own congregation. Number three, God reveals to us a heart to restore. Verse 15 And 17, when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, feed my lambs. And he came a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. And he came to a third time. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
And Peter was grieved because he had said it the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. There's so much that we could go on to here. I'm going to make a quick point and then move on to the last one. Uh, first, I wouldn't make too much if you've heard this preached before. There's two different Greek words used. One is agape and one phileo. I think uh, Jesus is just accommodating uh, there to Peter's language. A lot of preachers make a lot of that. I don't, I don't make much of it. Um, I don't think there's much hermeneutically there. The interesting thing, though, is uh, verse 15. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? We actually don't know what he's talking about. What would have been instructive at this moment is to see what Jesus waved to. Did he say, we love you more than, do you love me more than these disciples? Are those the these he's talking about? Or do you love me more than these fish, these fishing equipment that you have that brings you now money? Do you love me more than these Either way, he's putting the question to him, and his heart is to restore him, you know, because he betrayed him for three, uh, three times, and now he's restoring him three times. I think that's pretty solid. But here's what we do. We revert to this position that we're somehow constantly on spiritual probation, that Jesus forgives us to a point, but now we have to be on probation and we can't have that crime again or else we're going to get thrown back into slammer. We kind of revert to that. And here what Jesus is doing is saying, no, you're, everything's covered. <laughs> I will fully, completely restore you. Three offenses restored each time. And you know where it was done? What was it done around? A charcoal fire. And when was the last time we saw a charcoal fire? When, Jesus, when Peter was warming his hands around it, denying Jesus. And when was that? Also at daybreak when the sun was coming up. So another daybreak, another charcoal fire, but a completely different Peter who's now being restored instead of denying Friends, I just want to encourage you. You don't have to wait for grace. Now, I love the book of Hosea, and you can read that this afternoon if you want some extra credit. But read the book of Hosea, because here in this analogy, Hosea takes his wife, Gomer, and she cheats. She's a prostitute. She goes back. He buys her back from slavery. And at the end of it, the Lord makes the analogy, the way that Hosea dealt with Gomer and loved her is the way that I have loved you. And then he gives some beautiful language. He says, I am leading you by the hand. I am taking you up in my arms. I am restoring you. I have wrapped around you cords of kindness and love. And then the whole point of it, which culminates in Hosea chapter 14, is this. So return to me. Return to me. What's keeping you from Christ? Because the invitation of the gospel is you're restored. It is finished. Return to me and enjoy me. You're not on probation. You don't have to go spiritually hungry every day. Come to me and let me love you. Alistair McGrath says it this way. The faith by which we are justified is faith. Faith is like a channel through which the benefits of Christ flow to us. And we're not justified on account of faith. We're justified through faith. It's the work of Christ not our faith, which is the foundation for justification. Faith itself is a gift from God. So even if you have just a little inkling of faith, just this, 
small as a mustard seed. And you say, I just want to feel and know the love of God again. It's not the amount of your faith. It's the object of faith. And say, God, show me again. Restore me again. Let me enjoy you again. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm messed up. But I'm coming back to you around the crackle of this fire to hear the sound of your voice. I don't have to live life on spiritual probation. You forgive me now. And on this day of rest, you might as well rest in the grace and the mercy of Christ. What else are you going to rest in? Lastly, Jesus reveals his feet of purpose. Verse 18, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. When you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after he said this, he said, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That was John. The one who also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is this that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? (laughs) What about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Golly, I love that. Mind your own business, Peter. Basically is what Jesus is saying. Still speaking truth to him. What is that to you? You follow me. Quit worrying about other people and what they're doing. That's that's not the point of this. You follow me. I'll deal with John. So the saying spread among the brothers that the disciple was not yet to die. But Jesus did not say to him that he was not going to die. If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things, who has written these things. And we know that this testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus reveals his feet of purpose. And the feet of purpose, let me just summarize it, to glorify God and to joy him forever. That's it. It's the whole game. It's the whole gig. But interestingly, in this context, he says, follow me. And that's going to mean, Peter, your death. That people are going to lead you in a way you don't want to go. And that's going to be part of you following me. And we know that Peter led the church, and then historically, we don't know this to be 100% true, but historically, it's always shared that Jesus was crucified upside down. We don't know. We can't say that with 100% certainty. But here we have Peter following Jesus. And then you have John following Jesus down the very different path, exiled in Patmos, writing this epistle, writing other epistles, and living to a ripe old age, from what we can tell, to different purposes. But we all have different purposes to fulfill. All of us, however, are to walk with feet of purpose to follow God. And here's the good news. We'll close with this. Following God is not trying to keep up. He's not asking you to run a five-minute mile and you keep pace. Following God means just trusting him with every step. And when you get tired, you know what happens? Jesus waits for you. And when you can't make it up the hill, Jesus helps you. And when you get lost, you listen for his voice and he guides you. And when you don't know where to go, he'll come back for you. 
that our Lord is not going to leave us to our own devices, but he calls us to follow him. So let me ask, what's the epilogue in your life? John chapter 21, this beautiful epilogue where the revelation of Christ restores parts of people's lives, but also points to a future. So for you this morning, what needs to be restored? Where do you need Jesus to minister to you? What of these truths, what of this revelation do you need to grab onto? And then what will be the next sequel written? What's the next greatest attraction of your life? What's the next thing that you're gonna do to honor, to live for, and to enjoy Christ? In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, we come to you now. Holy Spirit, asking you to just impress upon us whatever you want us to know. But I pray whatever it is that this afternoon and this week we would revert, but instead we would love the revelation of your truth and love the revelation of you as a provider. We would love the revelation that you give us all throughout your word that you want to restore us and love the revelation that you have for us purpose. And Jesus, I pray pray we just keep our eyes fixed on you and our minds fixed on you and that we would love you and that we would uh, enjoy the peace of your presence. We pray in your name, amen.